0: In 1874, the British government passed a series of laws called the regulation of public worship. A lot of people cared an awful lot about church back then. True. On one side, people wanted more ritual and ceremony.
1: Order, Order. On
0: the other side, they wanted mostly none. Yeah. In the midst of the battle, one minister, a rector in London at a church called St. George in the East, had stopped a practice oh. whereby people who volunteered in church services could avail themselves of liquor from the rector's cupboard before and after the service. The Reverend King closed the cupboard. We have opened it again. Welcome to the Rector's Cupboard. Order! So welcome to another edition of Rector's Cupboard. Remote remote recording here in uh, pandemic time. So we're glad you're listening and we're looking forward to hearing from Bishop Melissa Skelton. That's the proper name, correct again? Archbishop.
2: Archbishop. Archbishop,
0: yeah. Melissa Skelton. My apologies already. Um, but uh, we're here for a little little conversation before we uh, have that interview. And we're here with our cupboard master, Ken Bell. Evening, Ken. Good evening. And with our uh, administrator and co-host, Amanda Mina. Hello, Amanda. Where, where are you tonight? Your background is you're in some kind of... Um,
3: uh, the beautiful Orpheum Theatre in Vancouver. Well the Orpheum
0: Theatre in Vancouver. Oh, fantastic. It is empty. Dreaming of
3: when venues are open. It yeah. is empty,
0: yeah. <laughs> so welcome. And Alison and Williams is joining us from her blanket fort.
3: Hello. A
0: perfect sounding blanket fort, which we were told makes the sound all better. So uh, we're glad you're joining us. And we thought off the top, we would talk about this article that is a few weeks old now. But it was in COVID time, and it was in New York Times Magazine. So it's a bit of a, of a longer read. Um, but it's about Prune Restaurant, which was restaurant in East Village. Um, and a really, really interesting article brings up some ideas. So Amanda, can you let us know what the article was about? Give us a quick summary.
3: Yeah, yeah, really quickly. I mean, it's a beautifully written piece, um, and it was recorded into kind of a podcast that you can listen to as well um but it's a restaurateur she's owned the business for 20 years um in kind of a what is now a trendy neighborhood but wasn't before um kind of opening it up before her time and she tells this amazing story of how the neighborhood has changed and the industry has changed and what's happened over a 20-year span leading up to the moment that she had to make this decision to shut down her business um that as it turns out was right before the governor kind of shut down the city um and so you know her her story just struck me in a lot of different ways but um you know she she walked through kind of the labyrinth of the application process uh to get government assistance and just what it took and the hours of her life that that's taken um she she spoke a little bit about um recommendations from friends on other ways that she could try to raise funds for her business um the the emotions behind it i think again it's the, the piece is beautiful and the language is beautiful mm-hmm. um and you know without explaining everything at, at the end of it she talks about how she actually has a bit of comfort in letting go if that's what needs to happen um, yeah that was noticed, a really
0: interesting part yeah
3: mm-hmm, there's this kind of release that she arrives at and that she has done this for 20 years and it was her baby and her dream and all of the blood and sweat and tears um, exceptional amount of sweat in some cases, just to, to make it work and thrive, and how her team, her staff, has become her family, and what that means. Um, and then as she wraps it up, she actually talks about how she's still sitting in her restaurant quietly at a bar stool by herself, um, still dreaming of what it could look like when it reopens. Yeah, she's still so got 10 years
0: st- of a lease, right?
3: Yeah, yeah, she is still <laughs> yeah. locked into it. Um, but um, as much as she talks about, I guess it would be okay if it wasn't here any longer. She still now finds herself dreaming of reimagining her menu or what it might look like to change up the way the seats are arranged. She spent hours just rearranging the seats to come up with what that could look like um, and forcing people to yeah. be together um, in that they want to be together, even perfect strangers. Yeah. Um,
0: so, so, Ken or Allison, why, why did it uh, strike you? You guys both read this and listened to. There was an audio piece with it as well, right? That you could kind of listen to. It felt a bit like a podcast. What yeah. um, What struck you guys?
4: Well, I, oh, um, I think that I, first of all, I will echo what Amanda said. It's a it's a beautifully written piece. Um, I listened to it uh, while I was doing dishes and chores and stuff like that. So that was really nice for me. Um, but I think, in one sense, I found it very comforting. Her, she doesn't seem to have necessarily a lot of fear mm. when when it's coming. Like, there's there's a lot of uncertainty, and she has this beautiful quote. Oh no, what is it? Um, she talks about that her restaurant is sleeping, That's and she'll see what happens, what what state. It is in when she returns and she's allowed to open the doors again. When
0: it wakes up again, she actually yeah. what it will be like when it wakes yeah. up again. If it does. And I think for if me, that's the thing that as we're looking at this time and we're going to be talking about, you know, with the Archbishop about church and, and declining attendance in, in many places well, and in, things that we think will be forever, will be constant and nothing is constant. No, uh, there are I, the changes. especially
4: not right now, yeah,
0: I mean. She offers a, a, a guide to this, yeah.
4: Mm-hmm.
2: I, I think for me, the, the the two things that caught my attention were, yeah, that, were COVID sort of caused a, a sudden change that she had no control over. The the decline, as successful as her restaurant was, being full, lots of people coming in, lots of locals, it was a place where people met and got married, it was a real community thing. It was on a slow burn to struggling for, for years, it had been open for 20 years, but she she talks about how she took over doing the cleaning and getting down on her hands and knees and scrubbing the floor because she couldn't afford a cleaner anymore because the profit margins just yeah. continued to, be, to, you know, it was eaten away at, eaten away at, eaten away at and wanting to be able to pay employees well and all that. And it reminded me of an article here in Vancouver uh, that talked about the same thing that the profit margins in restaurants 10 years ago were 15 to 20% on a plate was normal now it's in the single digits 5 8% is a is a good profit margin and partially then this restaurant are saying we've done it to ourselves by just trying to compete on the same level like every every place you go to if you get burgers and fries it's $16 or 16 25 and to increase your profit margin to the 20% range requires you to raise your price by a dollar but you can't do that because you're afraid the customers won't come back for that there's a
0: really there's really good interplay with her and kind of customers amanda you were struck by the brunch part right
2: yeah yeah
3: you know she talked about how the industry changed and how she watched um not just her partners the people that were building restaurants around her and creating this industry but how the people who come in and consume what she creates and it did shift from um kind of, as she called them, kind of outcasts in the neighborhood that she wanted to just provide this like really beautiful food, but not be um, super fancy, right? It was low key. That has shifted over time into kind of the Instagram generation, right? And so the big thing right now and of this time is is brunch. Everybody talks about brunch, but you can't (laughs) eat brunch without stopping to take several photos of it from several angles and enjoy, you know, some strange cocktail, but it has to be very artistic. It needs to be artisanal. and and at one point when she's talking about what she's looking forward to, how she dreams about the later, is when she can pick up the phone, and when somebody asks about brunch, just reply with, "There is no brunch." No brunch. <laughs> and I love really that good. line so much.
0: <laughs> there is something I think she offers, like you um, know, not to not to hyper spiritualize things or to, but I think one of the reasons that the the four of us who read that and there's many more obviously found some hope in it is that she is accepting some kind of death yeah that this is a possibility but she is Uh then looking towards uh perhaps a resurrection of some kind and and i think the idea that we could we could look and say well what what things might we have hung on to i'm sorry a little bit more that we that we can let go now and see how they'll come
2: yeah i mean the other thing that struck me was when her friends talked about getting a GoFundMe account going or something like that. And she was really touched by the idea of it, like former employees and other restaurateurs across the country. And she just sort of said, no, you know what, if it's, if it's time for this to go, like, I'm not the one who needs that. Someone else probably needs the GoFundMe more. And it, it struck me because of conversations I've been having with people about whether or not you should, uh, you know, go online and get your groceries online and all that sort of thing. And early on, it was really hard to find a spot. And I just thought, I want to make sure that someone who needs that service, who can't go into a into a grocery store because maybe they're sick or they have an elderly parent at home or whatever. I want them to have that. I felt it was selfish for she, me.
0: She really reflects that. that really, really she well. She
2: really reflects yeah. that. She says, you know, like, not, I don't think she uses the word selfish, but she just said, you know, I don't. I don't need that rescue. Someone else needs that more. That's, but what I that's
0: what I her. liked about it. She doesn't take shots at people and it no. thing at all, other than these fun kind of things at these. So read the article. We'll link it. Um, there's a thing you can listen to while you're doing dishes or building a blanket fort or, or whatever. And, uh, and you can get that, but we want to introduce now, well, he's already here. Our cupboard master, Ken Bell. And uh, what are we drinking tonight? Ken, in our remote locations, all four of us.
2: So what we're drinking is uh, from a local distillery called Sons of Vancouver. And uh, we've had their stuff before. We've been uh, to their location before. They're well known for their amaretto and vodka and a chili vodka, which goes really nicely if you like uh, Caesars or Bloody Marys for those in the States. Uh, And you like it spicy already. But one of the things they come up with every April 1st, so April Fool's Day, they come up with a new uh, liqueur. And so this isn't this year's. Uh, this is last year's. But they they make it again each year. Is a coconut liqueur. So it's like a coconut rum, uh, totally different than a Malibu because it, it doesn't. <laughs> it doesn't taste-,
4: taste like syrup. It actually tastes like coconut.
2: <laughs> it actually tastes like coconut. Um, no sunscreen. Yeah, it, it tastes wonderful. It goes great with pina coladas. Uh, if you take a sip of it, it, you really do get a hit of of. of authentic coconut in it um, and I'm enjoying it with just some pineapple juice and club soda I don't know what uh, the rest of you are enjoying it with Amanda how are you having yours
3: oh I, just a little bit of soda water and a little bit of citrus and it's it's great it really makes me want to be on a beach right now
2: yeah and Allison you're doing a similar similar thing
3: yeah, I, I
4: have orange because that's literally the only citrus I have in my house right now. I'd prefer it with lime. I've had it before with lime; it's very good. Yeah.
2: I've also had it with ginger beer, ginger beer and a little lime. So yeah, kind of I, like a, I did
0: that before with this one as well. This time I have gone with um, like a nice rum, a Mount Gay rum and oh, the, nice and some soda and the thing no no citrus and it it i really really like it it's fantastic
2: well so if uh, at, at some point sons of vancouver said we're welcome to come in and do a podcast in there at some point so when we're allowed to we're it, allowed to <laughs> we will do it again and try something else that they have but uh, we uh, we thank them and encourage you if you're in the vancouver area or you see it in your liquor stores grab some stuff from sons of vancouver
0: And on to the Archbishop interview. Thank you all very much. We'll talk to you later. We're really, really pleased uh, today to have with us Archbishop, sorry, Archbishop Melissa Skelton, who is the Archbishop for the province of BC, Bishop of the Diocese of New Westminster, which includes Vancouver, and uh, great to have conversation, particularly after we've been speaking through some of these uh, issues uh, in terms of business, work, marketing, and uh, changing culture for things like uh, restaurants in New York. And now we get to talk about some of the changes that are um, that are facing the church, the Christian church around the world. So I'll tell you a little bit about uh, Archbishop Melissa before we begin. Uh, she was ordained in 1993. I think that's what I have, correct? That's correct. 1993 and worked with Procter & Gamble uh, before that as a brand manager. And has worked in some really interesting places. Uh, Trinity Wall Street in New York in 1993 and 94 as associate, also associate in Trenton, New Jersey, worked also at Theological Seminary in New York in administration, and all kinds of other stuff that we could um, get into but was then rector at Trinity Church in Maine. How do I say the place name? Castine?
1: Castine.
0: Castine. Castine, thank you. Castine from 2002 until 2005, and also worked in Seattle, Washington at an Episcopal Church there, a.k.a. Anglican Church, and uh, then has been here in B.C. for a number of years, uh, the Diocese of New Westminster from 2011 on, and uh, is serving, as we said, as Archbishop here in BC. So welcome, Archbishop. Glad to have you join us.
1: Good to be joining you.
0: Yeah, and I, you're in Seattle right now?
1: I'm in Seattle right now just for a brief sojourn.
0: Yeah, it's uh, and of course with borders the way they are, you're not, nothing is certain anymore, right?
1: So, that's right, but I, I I, believe my case will prevail. Yeah. <laughs> I have some status, yeah. I have some likely. status and for some reason for being there. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. That's, that's probably true. I guess if you drive up to the border and say this is, This is who i am and what i'm doing we hope that carries we'll see (laughs) um ken bell is with us here and we'll be asking a lot of questions today afternoon ken
2: good afternoon good to see you i'm good
0: you're very good that's excellent um so archbishop i just wanted to start off it's interesting as i see your your bio and i'm sure that's not all the details by any means um, but that there are these two kind of vocational tracks um there's like the uh working with um marketing and administration and including uh with um procter and gamble i was forgetting that for a minute and toms in maine and then of course uh ordination and church work the question is kind of obvious what are the similarities what are the differences how have they overlapped
1: yeah so i guess the similarities are me (laughs) 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 uh yeah so it, it for the longest time i i tried to figure out uh uh, how, how to resolve what, for some, would be a, uh, a co- two contradictory uh, paths that diverge rather than coming together, and then finally, I just had to admit that that uh, that both of these paths uh, uh, were expressions of energies within me, mm-hmm. and uh, one of the energies was uh, I didn't grow up in the church, but was uh, I guess. I don't want to sound too grand about it, but the quest for meaning and yeah. purpose and a, an integrated way to see my life and to see the world. And uh, that's been a part of me, uh, you know, unexplainably in some ways uh, yeah. for a very, very long time. And the other energy uh, that I found, and I really found it quite by chance because I thought I was headed towards academic life. I was going to, teach college English and Shakespeare and Milton and Uh because I have an MA in English. Uh, But but the other thing that I discovered was I have an energy to create and to do and to bring things into being and to not do it just by myself, but to do it with groups of people. And that's what business school, uh, I had really had no idea what business school was. I had a brother who had done a Ph.D at the University of Chicago, and I, I was two years through my MDiv, and uh, decided to go finish at Chicago while doing an MBA. And I just found it was the, it was just the perfect uh, a match for these twin energies. And, uh, and that I, for a time, of course, vocationally, uh, really was actively uh, in terms of having roles and jobs in both worlds. So I was I was a brand manager at Procter and Gamble, and I was a—I was then a woman associate at an Episcopal church when it, that was the thing to have was a woman associate.
0: A woman associate.
1: Yeah, no, you know, you didn't really have many women rectors, but you had okay. women associates, and uh, I really loved the way I got to walk in both those worlds and to reflect on how they were uh, supported one another and how they pulled against one another, and so. And then I, I you know, my my—I said I've got the uh, vocational life. a a bit of a, it's for some people would seem kind of like a dilettante or, or, or it's not such a straight path. Not that anybody has that anymore, but um, I kind of went back and forth uh, between those two worlds uh, pretty dramatically. And then we're in some jobs that combine them both. And then after a certain point, I thought, well, uh, let me throw myself (laughs) into one and see what happens. And so that's where this craziness of, uh, you know, uh, all my work in Seattle, which did turn into two jobs, but they were both in the church, and then uh, my work in congregational development that then brought me to uh, Vancouver, so, and then the election as bishop happened.
0: When was that? The election of two thousand eleven. There
1: was so yeah, right, well, uh, probably a little bit later. I'd have to okay. look at my ring. The, which um,
0: is not on my phone, I, yeah, I know Ken have <laughs> questions, but I wanted. Get one more in, Ken. Before
2: yeah, go
0: ahead. Um, yeah. And that is sometimes in the church, and my experience has been more kind of in the evangelical expression of church. Yeah. Like the, and one of the things I found, I was going from a a more conservative type evangelical church to a Presbyterian church, which some people wouldn't have thought of as, but it was still more along those lines. And and when I did that, I was working in youth work and such, and and I picked up this little thing that. People thought, oh, okay, he's coming from this uh, evangelical expression with young people. And boy, those evangelicals are so great at, you know, building a youth group or something like that. So that will really translate here. The whole reason I'm bringing that up is with your uh, brand marketing experience, brand management, did you ever face in the church kind of this um, hope from people that like, oh, she's really experienced with this this kind of marketing. So this will be great for us.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, Uh, so the belief was that you know, and this is from uh, well-meaning lay people, and so I've had a lot of support from lay people because Mm -hmm. I'm the, in some respects, I'm the closest things to the world that they've lived in. And there sometimes is a, is a kind of fantasy that the business world will save the church. And what most people don't understand is most businesses are not
3: that great.
1: (laughs) So, uh, you know, and and I've been a part of some boneheaded mistakes. I mean, and, and so it's not so much that the, that, that the business world will save us, but, but I think, Uh, I I would say organization development and leadership uh, theorists and practitioners that have had a lot of experience in the business world, but beyond that, you know, offer us, uh, offer us interesting lenses and practical skills that we can put to work for us. I mean, it's useful to know how to run a meeting. (laughs) Um, It's useful to expect That when you put effort in, some productivity will come out of it. Yeah. Uh, So uh, there are just many things that I treasure from that world that I think really are gifts to the church. But uh, and at the same time, we have to remember what our core purpose is in the church. Not, not and it isn't. uh, You know, it's an it's a complex bottom line. I would say it's It's a very complex and interesting. Beautiful
0: bottom line. Yeah. Oh, thank you so much. Uh, yeah, <laughs> more, more, not financial profit. Sorry, Ken. Yeah,
2: yeah so um, so you were down in the Seattle area, St. Paul's and in, in Olympia, and doing congregational development, seem to be bringing together your uh, different skill sets. What possessed you to say, I want to throw my hat in the ring and look at moving up and becoming bishop in what was, in many ways at the time, one of the most Wounded and also controversial diocese in the entire Episcopal world. What what made you think that sounds like a fun thing for me to do the next the next logical step in this. Well, in this well it's
1: so interesting. So I'll just so I, I met Michael Ingham. I was in charge of the College for Bishops, the new bishops at General Seminary. That's the first time I met Michael Ingham at the beginning of his time. Yeah, uh, when this was just kind of and then, then then of course, I I went about my life. So I never thought of the Diocese of New Westminster as one of the most controversial wonder places okay. ever. And, and interesting, you should say that because my parish in, in, uh, in, at, in Seattle, some would have said the same thing about it. Okay. And uh, what I found about myself there was I'm well suited to do that work. And that work, is as complex because anytime a a community has been wounded or has had its heart broken, which is how I think of it, you know, there's both, uh, there are many things to do that are of an organizational, you know, some of it a financial nature, but at its core, it's about its sense of confidence in itself. And it's about how do you take, and this was something I said at St. Paul's, how do you take, uh, Uh, broken hearted and turn it into broken open. And uh, so uh, I just, because I'd done the training session, um, Michael Ingham and his staff had invited me to come up and do the training program that I had started in, in, uh, in Western Washington, uh, and had kind of vetted through my own parish, which grew at a kind of phenomenal and steady rate. And it was kind of on, on its last it, it was in a it was in a dire situation when I became rector. Um, uh, so I, I got to know the people. I I got to see uh, some of the potential. I got to see how readily they embraced something created in the states. Mm. I didn't know then how polarizing that would be, um, <laughs> but uh, I learned uh, and how much they embraced it. and And I. I had run for bishop in two other places in the Episcopal Church in New Jersey and in New Hampshire, uh, home of uh, you know of the first openly gay bishop in the Episcopal Church, and I uh, came in second in one of those, and I withdrew from the other uh, because it was for some reasons I just it didn't feel right to me, and so this felt it felt akin culturally in terms of West Coast, right? Yeah. I wanted to be in an interesting city at this stage of my life. And I wanted, wanted at least from the very little information you can gather in any of these things, to feel like there was a willingness to work on the support of local communities of faith. That we would not be about simply being the spokes engine for issues. We right. would actually turn our attention to building and developing local communities of faith because that's my thing.
2: So, so what does that look like? So, you developed this program of congregational development when you were down uh, at St. Paul's. Uh, so, tell us a bit about what what that is, what what that means, and what that's looked like, and, and how it's transferred up here. And
1: yeah, so right now it's the it's the fastest growing um, program of congregational development in the U.S. And we started it, of course, in Diocese of Olympia. And and I drew on much of my own background. So I I would say uh, I had been through some congregational development training programs, one in particular, as had the new bishop in in Western Washington. And uh, then I brought kind of my, I guess it is a, a marketing energy and interest in numerical growth in the communication of identity uh, and the goodness of identity in communicating. So this was put together in in about three to four months. And then we launched two sessions of it very quickly. Uh, It combines church uh, models. It combines uh, models from organization development and leadership. It uh, works in plenary and small groups. It imparts practical skills. What we're trying to turn out is clergy and lay teams for, for parishes uh, that both have a framework, a way to understand what their work of looking at their places are and, and energizing them for action and have the practical skills to pull that off. So right now we're probably in six, seven diocese in, in, in uh, the U.S. with maybe four to six more ready to to launch big dioceses, Diocese of Atlanta, Diocese of New York, I mean, big dioceses. Yeah. In in Canada, we've, we've, we're we in the Diocese of New Westminster, we're in the Diocese of Ottawa. Okay. So uh, I've just found it's quite the challenge in Canada to convince or to invite people to think that substantial uh, congregational development training, not just one program one year and one the next, is the way to go. Right. It, in the US, they're believers because we've had so many awesome trainers come through the program and, and really lots of on the ground results
2: as well. So this is of- done um, in in parishes. So if you're going you're invited into a parish to work on the ground, uh, and the parish has maybe been around for whatever, 50, 75 years. Yeah. They're facing all, most of them are facing similar challenges. They're yeah. maybe getting older. They're maybe shrinking a bit. Uh, people don't. Uh, it's it's not the same as it used to be, where you just threw up the Anglican sign and everyone who was at some point born in England or had someone uh, a relative yes. there would attend. Uh, so, what does it look like that you're trying to change? You talked about identity. So, is that things like uh, vision and mission sort of stuff, or does it go deeper than that? What What do you mean by identity, and how does that begin to play out in the local parish?
1: So, so what we do, and I should say it's a diocese who sponsors the program. So there's a system-wide diocesan benefit too. So yeah. parishes send teams of clergy and laity. Those can be from, I mean, it runs the gamut in our own diocese, you know, a parish run by a British evangelical. Yeah. There's one kind of out in the country, Maple Ridge, uh, <laughs> that again had a huge deficit has now tripled in size. Uh, but anyway, but that's a whole other thing. Uh, some of it's his own skills, of course. So we have people like that. We have people from different countries. We have Filipino uh, Canadians who come with their cultural stuff. Uh, it, it's just incredibly diverse. Some of what you've just talked about, let's say parishes that are mostly Anglo, many uh, British expats. You know, lots of uh, British accents uh, who who. Uh, are a little bit more, it's quite the wake up call that putting the sign out doesn't just bring them running. So they all come together. We learn what the core purpose of a parish church is, which no one was ever taught in seminary or anyway. And um, what is we, that?
2: What do, you, what do you define that as? The core purpose of the parish church?
1: To assist God in gathering people into a, uh, into a community of transformation, deeper and deeper in, into baptismal identity, and then to send them out to civic life, workplace, family life, and for some in the church, in the context you're in, at, you know, as, as salt, light, and leaven, and then to do that as a cycle over and over again. Uh, so, for instance, uh, you know, people have to work on, in what way are we gathering? How are we assisting right. God in gathering? I think God is the ultimate gatherer, yes. But how are we doing that? What is it about what we do that actually assists people to go more deeply into their baptismal identity and purpose. And in what way are we equipping people to be sent into the places they actually are into the world? And in what way might we be doing that as a parish? So from my experience, here's what I learned in seminary. Keep plates spinning. (laughs) That was the purpose. (laughs) Keep plates spinning. Look busy. Look busy. Rather (laughs) than, rather than, be focused on purpose. So that's one dimension of what we help people with. Right. Around identity, I am actually a believer in the goodness of Anglican identity. As fraught as it is right. with everything, I'm a believer that it is, it is a, a, an identity of health and saving health in the time we live in. Um, so we many people don't know how to art- even articulate what that is. Right. the complexity of it. So helping them to to explore that, helping them to do, uh, for lack of a better term, diagnostic work about uh, giving them models through which they look at what, who their parish is and what their parish does and help them see it differently and then take on step-by-step-by-step by step by step interventions and improvement efforts to make it, to bring it more into alignment with what it needs to be now. Uh, it, the effectiveness of, of all of this depends on the quality of the team that a, that a group sends
2: and right. the
1: readiness of a parish and its leaders to get going.
2: Right. And, one the, uh, yeah. yeah one of the challenges you often face is people say, yeah, we, we want to do anything to make this place grow, to make it more energetic, to make it more lively." Yeah. And as soon as you begin to bring in some suggestions, even suggestions that they've come up with and agreed to, yeah, uh, once that begins to actually hit, you know, hit the road and become real, they realize they actually don't want those changed at all um i
1: know yep
2: what kind of challenges have you met with uh or in challenges both in you know also in the positive sense but from clergy or or clergy themselves needing to relearn some things or re-understand uh the role of of what it means to be a a a pastor and priest and clergy i I do i do think i
1: mean i think I don't think theological education has changed that much, even since I was in seminary and I was in many seminaries uh, because I did different things. But uh, I I think um, uh, there is, there's a tendency for clergy to be, and and not that these are not good things, to be trained in kind of these areas of, you know, it's homiletics, it's biblical studies, it's this and that. But there's not, Truly, and this is one of the reasons this training session evolved. This training program evolved. There's not a way in which we equip clergy in collaboration with laity to to do the uh, you know to look to. It's a combination of leadership oversight and interven and action that that a little at a time can take a parish such as mine in Seattle from, you know, bad finances, lack of confidence, beautiful liturgy, but not as beautiful as it could have been, to something that was quite magnetic and had the capacity to grow. So, uh, you,
0: uh, yeah. There? I think sometimes in, in various aspects of church work, leadership, growth, whatever you want, there can be a uh, uh, an assumption that, if we just try to become you know more, and more relevant to the culture in some ways, you know so
1: yeah.
0: I sometimes call it just like the decorations have just changed, so that there 's not necessarily <clears throat> some of this theological kind of work that you would talk about and leadership oversight and action it 's kind of like if we can just get it into you know have something in a in a movie theater with uh, you know, a bigger screen or something and have, but yet the, the, the thing itself is, is relatively similar. Um, it seems to me that what you're talking about here and what I know of places like the cathedral in Vancouver and other things, you're doing this deeper work, um, trying to get people to see where they can be sent um, rather than how can we, how can we build the best kind of attractional model? Yeah. It, it's deeper work than that. And yes. uh, I see, uh, I see that as, as something that uh, has obviously a, a longer life to it. I was interested in the, in the marketing stuff, Ken and, Ken and my, uh, myself, and some people involved in leadership and some of the things we're working on read a marketing book for, I don't know, is it like the only marketing book I've ever read? Ken might be up there. Probably. So the only one that.
2: That. I may have read one or two others because yeah. of.
0: Archbishop. You've heard of Seth Godin, obviously. Yes.
1: Oh yeah. Uh,
0: so he has his new book is called this is marketing. <laughs> the, and, and, he has a line in there that I thought was interesting in relation to some church work as well, because he said that in the end, he said, now, he said, it hasn't always been this way, but, uh, marketing is empathy. Mm. Um, mm. I, I just thought, yeah, you, you kind of agree. With-
1: well, yeah. So when I was at Proctor, I mean, so, so the main thing I did at Proctor was not general business management, though I, I had to have that job for a while. It was the it was it was launching a deeper way to do consumer learning than we had done before, and once we you know my big contribution at Procter was this breakthrough thing related to a product that they wanted to to offer that they didn't really know what it did, <laughs> and uh, you know. Because it's really a technology company with marketing added on, and so they have the product; they just don't know who to sell it to and for what. Uh, I'm sure that's changed by now, maybe not. Um, so uh, the whole thing of 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 creating ways to better understand where people are coming from, for lack of a better term, you know, it, it was a bit convicting to see the lengths to which I could go to understand. Hair care regimen for men and women, and how little we do that in the church.
0: It's not interesting. That's so a- part
1: of what we do in the School for Parish Development or the College for Congregational Development in the U.S. is they 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 have to go to school on learning, and and they you know they interview and compile the learning just from like ten interviews in a parish setting, and just from doing that, they could. Mm-hmm. They could come up with their project for the next two years Thank just God. by listening mm-hmm. and asking questions.
2: So good. And what kind of what kind of uh, I'm assuming not everyone uh, is w- welcome welcomes this welcomes it with open arms. What kind of resistance or pushback have you experienced as you've tried to talk about changing the way uh, people are supposed to see church and understand what it, what the vocation of the church is? Yeah. What kind of pushback have you had? Or well, I guess. you know,
1: it, it, it's so interesting. I wish I could call it that. <laughs> that, that. That would be great if it were pushback or challenge. Because <laughs> then you can, it, it's kind of like, you can it, work with it, it just doesn't <laughs> compute. or And I and I actually don't blame people for that. Because it in, in some setting, the, the kind of the social nature of the church, and here I'm thinking about, and, and goes way, way back to my, my background in the American South, you know, cause I was part of two African-American congregations mm. and just the value of coming together and, and having a place where you could just lift your hair down. Mm. Uh, the, the social, uh, glue that the church created it is quite compelling when you feel you're, uh, you know, you're an interloper or you're an enemy. And, uh, so so I, I think uh for um uh, expats, for instance, from other countries, or I I just think that whole thing is is can be such a lure. And and I would just say it's not enough. It, it's not enough in this day and time, and it's really not enough because it's fascinating to be a Christian person. <laughs> it's so challenging and fascinating, baptismal identity and purpose. It's interesting, you know, and we should be deepening it, and we should be sharing our stories. And anyway, and looking at and looking at where where the rubber actually meets the road in our everyday lives. I mean, and this COVID nineteen thing. Oh my gosh! I said the stakes have gone up on on mature Christianity because we are tested every day in our homes in ways we have we haven't been lately. So parents (laughs) trying to muster, you know, their goodness in the midst of the chaos, or, you know, uh, those of us who love to work having to actually deal with our humanity and our limitations. I mean, that to me is, is so much a part of baptismal identity and purpose. And and so the, the kind of uh, the stakes on that, or or the confrontation we have with our own lack of it, that lack of Christian maturity is really high right now, I would say. Yes. And that's, I believe, why we see some of why we see our, our numbers on ver, on online worship are double and triple what they would be in person right now.
2: Yeah, I've talked to a number of ministers who who uh, say they're they're getting way more people out now. <laughs> granted, some people are are you know they're ministers in other they're they're they may be ministers from another church or like at least here I can just be. I don't have to be doing stuff. Um, some of it has been, you know, the convenience of just people checking things out, whether or not that will ever translate into, yeah. uh, seeing these people or developing a relationship because the the challenge there is how do you do if community and coming together, the gather is so important. Yes. Um, you know, that's really tough to do right now. That's one of the chief challenges is that gathering, uh, aspect. That's um, right. And even the spiritual development. So what are some of the things you do around spiritual development or spiritual formation or that deepening into the uh, baptismal, baptismal identity? What, what does that look like for you in, in the ministry that you do?
1: So for me, because I'm I'm so, remo- you know, sadly, I, I, well, I, I'm a parish priest for the next two weeks. Right. Like it, yeah. and, uh, it's a lot of work. <laughs> <laughs> it's like cathedral. Wow. I
3: yeah, did cathedral. this for
1: 10 years? um so you know um what i'm i'm attempting to help the cathedral do so it is this very thing like given our constraints and we don't know how long we'll be where we are around Mm -hmm. not being able to gather in person again because that's my other job is coming up with that plan which we will release next week Mm -hmm. um so how do we thoughtfully uh, go about thinking uh, about where people currently are and what kinds of experiences can lead them more deep deeply into the next step so for instance, at the cathedral i mean i I believe we should have newcomers' gatherings while we 're not able to gather you know this was a, a it was a wonderful new idea, so we 're going to set that into motion but how how you know across all the offerings, if you look at one one parish church. The idea is that God is always inviting people to go deeper. What signals that for us as leaders? And what offering do we have that allows people to take the next step? Right. Whether that's a, you know, for some of us, it's like Anglicanism 101. I mean, we have people from, uh, you know, evangelical traditions that are looking for a different way to be church who are just like trying to get oriented. For others, it's about a prayer group. For others, it's about getting engaged in a doing ministry. Uh, You know, for others, uh, uh, you know, for parents, it's, it's the stuff that they're actually dealing with. How do you stay peaceful and calm in the midst of the chaos in their own homes of trying to work and have their children? So it's how within a system of a parish church do you intentionally go about thinking of it as a system and training people to be leaders to know when somebody's signaling, I'm ready to go to the next level Mm. and how to both have that offering and how to influence them to take the step. That's how I think of it. I think of it as a system.
2: And then you talked about that that idea that that uh sentness the going out into the into the world. Um I mean what do you what do you think the church still has to say or what is your hope that the church still has to say to a culture that has largely decided uh, it doesn't want. It doesn't necessarily think the church has anything to offer because what it's offered is either uh, sort of empty platitudes or it's full of anger and hate and judgment. How? Yeah. What? What do you think the church can say to the wider community and to to culture in general?
1: Mm-hmm. I'll be honest with you. I don't. I hardly ever think at that level. Okay. Because I, I find that. Even the question, I find it robs me of energy <laughs> right. because it's me, uh, you know, what the church can do right the culture that feels like, oh my gosh. So here's what I do. I try, you know, platitudes for me are anathema. They're deaf, Right. And it's because I, because I didn't come from a church background. So I, I never was given the gift of the platitudes as a part of my landscape. So I, I do my very best. Mm-hmm. not to assume that anyone either cares about the platitudes or is, or finds them at all interesting. And to me, they're not interesting. So the the degree to which I can actually be as transparent as I can about, you know, how, how it really works for me. uh, And, and check out my Easter sermon. You'll see it there. (laughs) um, About the resurrection uh, and kind of where, What's important to me, and that 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 for me, that's where people actually start. They don't start from anymore from the level of the platitudes are the place to go, right. or the you know, or or the or even we don't even want those from you anymore. So the kind of hate and stuff, mm-hmm. you know, I just think we just have to keep extending ourselves. I, I we have to keep inviting people. We have to uh, and our communities are are pretty good at that, um, not perfect, but pretty good at that, and I'm thinking of the cathedral community in particular uh, and uh you know, I just find regardless of people's resentment and they're kind of they're mad at the church, the church has let them down there's this underlying longing I saw it all the time
2: mm.
1: and, and sometimes they would come and sit in the back row in our place, you know where in Seattle where the where the music sounded like the gates of heaven had opened and very high church incense, you know, just really holiness was the thing. And, uh, and, you know, and and people from other religious traditions who, who who found it that tradition confining for them, that they longed uh, to be in touch with something that felt real and where, where, and where God felt very big. Right. So I could do that work every day of my life.
2: So good. (laughs) That's good. good.
0: Yeah. Well, it's, um, it's such a, it's so refreshing to hear this uh, positive, um, direction and and energy, uh, because I, I I identify with that, that there, it, it would be easy to kind of focus on the anger or the division or the difficulty. And of course, for you, with your experience in the United States, you you can look and see contours of, you know, what is the Christian church? And, of course, the answer yeah. can be really uh, wide-ranging and where has that uh, actually caused great difficulty. And But then when you go to – and you're with a group of people and you're with this congregation who's saying, we, we want to make a difference, we think yeah. things matter, um, and then whatever cultural kind of challenges and issues you face – um, there's so much to do, and there's so many positive things that compel us. I know that um, the cathedral has a really important place in the city, and even just in the last number of years has undergone a major renovation. Right?
1: It has. Um, yes. So it's
0: interesting, kind of how physically there's a renovation, but also in terms of that call, like how are we going to work and, and minister in this city in the days and years ahead? And so,
1: yes, we're
0: really glad to to meet you. And to, to have you as part of this, we're going to link whatever information you want to give us, um, like uh, here for more information on this, we'll just put in the episode notes of, of the little podcast. So, um, and uh, and we want to also wish you the best in, in this border thing you're dealing with. Thank you.
1: Your prayers are invited. <laughs> uh, they're, they're, they're,
0: they're, they're, they're <laughs> And uh, two more weeks, you said, as a parish priest. So we'll be sure to you know, do some of that work. And, and uh, uh, But Ken, did you have any more questions before we kind of sign well, up?
2: No, I just, it made me think that, that that emphasis on gathering and witness made me think. I think it was in the uh, – we just did a podcast with a guy named Kevin Miller uh, who just released a documentary called J-E-S-U-S-A. Yeah, that's right. Right, Todd? Yeah. yeah. And I think it was in that that someone talked about would, would Jesus – created was a table Mm. that's what he started that's what the that's that's what the 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 religion was really a table where people would, would would gather and they would eat together and and stuff so there's a beautiful sense of that and we've also uh in the work that todd and i have done talked a lot about sort of a threefold this concept of a threefold witness or threefold sentness the idea that uh we are to be. We witness in terms of attentiveness. We we are witnesses to what we see around us and see the presence and activity of God. We're witnesses in terms of correspondence, like we are supposed to. Cor- we are supposed to be witnesses of Christ, correspondent to Christ, and then mm. occasionally witnesses in the sense of talking about Christ as well. And so I I hear in in what you're saying a resonance with that idea of that that sentness, that witness um, uh, role. So what is your what is your hope and optimism for the church in the in the years to come? I mean, um, again, it's, it's it's we always hear these stats of churches are, are closing and done and dying and, and yeah your, what is your, what is your hope <laughs> for, for the faith and all that and hope for Christ in that? Yeah,
1: yeah I I I don't I mean in the Anglican church, the national office did an issue on, you know, we we'll be out of business in 40 years. And I, I did a, a post and it was, uh, did I say, bo- no, I said rubbish. <laughs> I said, out of business for you is rubbish. I mean, it, it's, I, I get it. I, I get all the gloom and doom and, you know, let's turn all the churches into community centers. Say, let's have churches that are also community centers. Mm-hmm. So my, my hope, we're, we're, what gives me hope right now are our individual parishes in our diocese and I should also say in places in the U.S., because I, I still am in touch with those, you know, that are doing brave, important, productive things. Uh, you know, we have we, we have turnaround stories and, and turnaround is only it's time limited. You know, it's like it, it, you have to make a move every day. To, to, you can't just no one rests anymore. Right. That are they're part time priests. Really. That are full time priests, that are parishes that were going down the tubes that somebody would have closed, that, you know, and, and then some that have resources that need, you know, a kind of cattle prod. Um, so I, I'm, I'm given hope by the variety of ways I do see some parishes responding. And we have, I guess, when I've talked it around in other, from other dioceses, we have a greater percentage that are st- stable or growing than most other dioceses. So there's that. Here. Secondly, the flood of people coming into the ordination process. Uh, it's crazy, man. <laughs> Deacons and priests who want this life, who are hungry to learn a more comprehensive, less specialist view of what it is to lead a parish, to lead an organization. So I'm really heartened by that. And, uh, you know, and I guess it's within the training network, which is Canadian and Uh, U.S. Just the kind of readiness people have to embrace this kind of thing that got put together over like a four-month period uh, Mm -hmm. that has just taken off for and diocese coming on board. We're focusing on local communities of faith. We're not just spreading it across everything. We're we're we see our purpose is doing that so that. That's what gives me hope. And then my hope is nurtured by the sacraments today. It's nurtured by the Holy Eucharist, a prayer life, uh, and you know, this beautiful part of the world we live in, even yeah. with its troubles.
0: It's, well, yes. It's and of course, uh, post pandemic, we'll see how things. Uh, I know. Come back and, and what the next, the next normal is. But um, uh, really encouraged as well to hear in, this, in your last uh, uh, comment here about the flood of those uh, seeking ordination. And you, you mentioned early on kind of the, the um, search for meaning in, and or yeah. the importance of meaning. And uh, that maybe is reflective of, of people uh, seeking meaning in terms of vocation as well. Not that, and but
1: and just make the steps more difficult. That attracts more people. <laughs> I've heard that. Yeah. <laughs> it does. We went from a very amorphous to something yeah. extremely disciplined and with high expectations and Crazy. we just saw a trickle go to a flood.
0: That's fantastic. Wow. Lesson in that. For yeah. <laughs> so thank you very much, Archbishop. We're really glad that you took this time. We'll uh, let you know when we get this posted. And again, send us anything that you would like us to include in the episode notes. Great. Best to you. Best in, to you. Uh, coming back here.
1: Thank you so thank much. Thank you very much. All right. Bye-bye. bye-bye.